You know, one of the things that the Old Testament does is it prepares us in many ways to appreciate the grace that is magnified in the New Covenant. And it does this very often by showing us the severity or the consequences of sin. That doesn't mean that there's no grace in the Old Testament. It's full of grace. When the law is given, it's given in grace. I am the God who brought an undeserving people out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage. But the Old Testament gives many clear examples of the wages of sin. It does it in the law by showing the exactness of God's requirements and the penalties for breaking them. It does it in the curse sections of Scripture, especially in Deuteronomy where terrible things are promised to the lawbreaker. That's what a curse is. A promise of bad things upon those who do evil. But most often, the Old Testament shows us by way of example. I mean, how many times do we read, so-and-so did such a thing and died, or, or this plague came, or that city was destroyed, or its inhabitants wiped out because always because of sin. Sometimes it's the sin of the world in general, as in the case of the flood. Sometimes sin grows in certain areas or cities to unprecedented levels and God intervenes, like in Sodom and Gomorrah or in the conquest of the land of Canaan. Sometimes, in fact many times, God's judgment falls upon His own people as they turn away from Him and and slide into idolatry and immorality. But there's one sin that stands out almost uniquely during a period of Israel's history. History that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 was written down for us, for the church. And it happened during the wilderness wanderings of Exodus and Numbers. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Numbers chapter 11. And in Numbers chapter 11, we see the sin of discontent. In fact, in the book of Numbers and in Exodus, the people are constantly grumbling and complaining and and crying about their circumstances. Now God in this responds in a way that most people find shocking when they read it. If you're reading through the book of Numbers for the first time, this is what will surprise you. We have a hard time. We, We just can't believe that God would react to something so trivial as complaining. And the reason we think this way is because we complain and grumble all the time without a second thought. Right? It's It's common. Everybody does it. Everybody grumbles all the time. How could something like that elicit such a a devastating response from the Lord? Well, the reason we think that way, it's not because God is severe. That's how we're tempted to see it, right? We read it, God is severe. No, the reason is because we see sin wrongly. I mean, even as as a society, we don't think of right and wrong in terms of absolutes, and especially not absolutes defined by God. And that thinking that surrounds us tends to trickle down into the church where we begin to think and say the same things that the world does. And so when it comes to what is evil, it's, well, so long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's not that bad. Or even when we think in terms of sin, the worst sins are the ones they must be that cause the most harm to other people. But when we do that, we've made ourselves the judge of good and evil. And what we're called to and and obligated to do as creatures is to surrender to God's definitions of sin. And it's it's not determined primarily by, by who does it hurt. That's not the question to ask when you're asking how bad a sin is or how evil evil is. It's not who does it hurt, but does it offend or oppose God? Does it go against the way He created and ordered things to be? 
And we as His people, we have to understand good and evil that way. Good and evil as it relates to God. And only once... Now, why am I starting a sermon on complaining that way? Well, because once and only once you begin to understand sin this way, only then will you be able to see the sin of discontentment and overcome it. And so this morning, we're going to look at three passages in the book of Numbers. Three instances where the people grumbled, and we're going to begin in Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Numbers 11, 1 through 6. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of the place was called Tibera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would show us our own hearts this morning if we are discontent and grumbling, Lord, it is the greatest thief of joy that we can know. You have given us all of the resources we need to be satisfied. Like we read this morning, Paul knew how to be content in all things. And it wasn't because of what was happening around him. It was because of Christ. And in Christ, he could say, come what may. I am satisfied. Help us, Lord, to have the same mindset. And I pray this morning You would work to create that mindset in us that is in Christ, that was in Paul, that allows us to rejoice and be content no matter where we are, what is happening to us, or what we are or have become, or where we're going. Lord, help me to preach. This is Your Word. You have said it will not fall to the ground void. Lord, we believe that it comes from the mouth of You who cannot lie. And so, Lord, this morning, do not let Your Word fall to the ground void without accomplishing that for which it was sent. Lord, work amongst us this morning that sin may be repented of and that contentment may be found. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Help us, Father. Amen. There comes a time in every individual's life where they have to begin to wrestle with their circumstances, don't they? I mean, people have to come to terms with what they have and where they are and who they are. They just do. Everybody does. And for a few people, things have gone, by and large, just how they expected them to go. You know, when they were young, they made a plan and they followed it through and they're still following it through today. But of course, those people are few and far between, aren't they? They are exceedingly rare. For most, most of us, most people, either we're swept along by, by the wind, they said how it feels, we're carried along by forces outside of our control. And every plan or plotted out future that we've made for ourselves or for our, our families, it just doesn't always turn out the way we expect it to turn out. It just doesn't. And listen, that doesn't mean it turned out poorly. It could have turned out poorly. But what I'm talking about is, is just how little control we actually have over our own lives and futures and destinies. How little control we have over where we end up in this life. Because for most people, their future plans never materialize. It confounds them. 
You know, they, they don't understand. Maybe they get irritated. Even if things are good, they're irritated because even though they're good, they're just not what they wanted them to be. I mean, I don't know how, if I were to take a poll in this room, how many of you, you know, where you thought you were, when you were, uh, maybe 16, 18 years old, where you thought you were going to be today compared to where you are? Very few people in this world will be able to say that's, it happened like I thought. It's just not the way things work in this world. And as Christians, we are uniquely positioned to be able to think about this because we have an answer. In fact, that this fact of life, because it is a fact of life, things don't always turn out like you planned. It isn't just a fact of life. It's a biblical truth that any serious student of Scripture is aware of. And the truth is demonstrated in the verses we just read but it's given most succinctly, most clearly in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 16.9. Uh, Good one to commit to memory. Proverbs 16.9. The heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Have you ever stopped to think about what this proverb means. It only has 13 words, but there's a a lifetime of lessons in there. Because listen, and, and this is important, everyone in this room right now, they're either wrestling with their circumstances and situation, and if you're not, you will be shortly. And it's only those people who have come to grasp and to believe this truth who can ever truly be content. Because what it's teaching is that when things do not go the way you hoped, when they don't go the way you dreamed or planned, and your life isn't what you thought it would be, or even if it is what you thought you would be, and you hate your situation, you planned it out, said it's going to be good, it wasn't. Whatever it is, this verse is teaching is that what's happening in those moments is that your plans for your life and God's plans for your life have diverged. You wanted one thing, God gave you another. You planned your your way, and the Lord directed your steps. Here's where your plan went. Here's where the Lord's placed you. You know, we can plan and prepare, and I'm not saying people shouldn't plan. They ought to. God made us to be creatures that are thoughtful of the future, that provide and make provision and think about what is to come. But we also have to understand we do not have the final say in our own lives. You experience this. Every person belongs to God, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they love it or hate it. We are His. We all are His. And God has the right to establish our steps however He sees fit. And so if you're irritated or even angry about life, this is not some impersonal fate that's strung you along or even ultimately people who have brought these circumstances about. Ultimately, anger, irritation over circumstances is irritation and anger toward God. You may try and peg the blame on someone else or something else, but that's not how God sees it. God sees a person who is acting in open rebellion against His goodness and His wisdom. And you say, what about people when when they do bad things to me, objectively bad? Just think of Joseph in the Old Testament in the book of uh, Genesis. You remember what happened to him? Bad things. Thrown into a pit by his brothers, they were going to kill him. Sold into slavery when they decided not to kill him. Lied about in Potiphar's house, thrown into the dungeon. Forgotten in the dungeon for two years. And he recognizes, yes, bad things have happened to me. People have treated me wickedly. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good. You know what that enables Joseph to do? When his brothers come, he forgives them. He's able to forgive them because he knows God is at work even in this evil thing I am suffering. And He is at work for my good And so I don't have to, I'm liberated from holding this bitterness and grudges against those who hurt me. Well, we see in our passage this morning, 
God ordains our steps. There are three things I want you to see. Uh, In this first passage and the passages that will come, three attitudes that lead to rebellion against a good and a wise God. And the first is forgetfulness. Forgetting all kinds of things. Forgetting where you were. Forgetting where you're headed. Forgetting how God has changed both of those things. And people forget what God has done, and when they forget what God has done, they become ungrateful. That's how this passage opens up, isn't it? You have the people of God, and they're wandering in the wilderness, and what are they doing? They are complaining. But they're not just complaining and and grumbling. They're grumbling about their misfortune. It's a small word in the Hebrew. It's, It's the equivalent of the word bad. And so that's what they're doing. They're complaining about all of the bad things that happened to them immediately after being set free from slavery to Pharaoh. Have you ever had to deal with an ungrateful child? Maybe they wanted to go uh, play a game or go to the park. They wanted to do something. And because you love them, you, you want to do this thing that they enjoy. And so you play the game with them or you take them to the park. And then when it's over, the game is over, the time at the park has come to an end, they start to cry and whine or even throw a tantrum. How are you feeling at that point? Your anger is kindled, right? Why? Because of ungratefulness. You've done something good for them, something that they've asked for, and instead of being thankful for the opportunity, all they can do is complain because it's over. One misfortune, and they turn on you. They might even say something so ridiculous as, you'll never let me do anything. Even though not five seconds ago, you did let them do exactly what they asked that they could do. Well, that's what's happening here in this passage, isn't it? Only we're not talking about a trip to the playground. God's people had been enslaved for hundreds of years. They carried bricks and scars on their backs for generations. Their children were being killed in the Nile River. They were slaves under the cruel and ruthless whip of Pharaoh. That's where they were. Slaves to a cruel master. And then if you read Exodus 2, 23 and 24, you'll realize that they were actually asking God to remember them and to help them. And then it says, He heard. And He raised up Moses. So not only does God hear their cries for help, He acted. He moved to set them free. And when He did, they grumbled. And isn't that just like us? You pray and pray for something, some deliverance, some help, and when the answer comes, you grumble. Maybe you think, oh, I never do that. I never grumble when God answers my prayers. How many of you have ever prayed for patience? And when God answered that prayer by pressing you into a situation that demanded patience, you got so hot you turned red. You prayed to be gentle and merciful. Make me like Christ. And then God puts you into a situation to train you to be merciful and gentle. And when He does, you despise it. You despise the very answer to your prayers. And you complain. Why is this bad thing happening to me? Why am I in this situation? You forget what you prayed for. Or maybe you object. No, you don't understand. It It happens all the time. Well, no training is accomplished in a single session. I mean, no one grows strong by spending a single day in the gym. No one learns an instrument in an afternoon. No one owns a skill in an hour. And no one grows in holiness striking down those besetting sins and being transformed. Nobody does that in a day. And God answers your prayers for holiness and for Christ-likeness, for faithfulness to prepare you for the future. He does it by training you and disciplining you and transforming you. So don't complain when He answers your prayers by putting you into a situation that is uncomfortable and irritable. God is at work. And God is more concerned about your holiness and your perseverance than your comfort. We often forget that. We forget it when we have great and ambitious plans laid out for our lives and plans that we think are great, plans that aren't even sinful, but plans that would, unbeknownst to us, 
ultimately lead us to spiritual ruin. And to protect us and our families from danger, to protect our souls from being swallowed up, God comes and for your eternal good, He smashes your plans. He changes your life's direction. He uproots you or tears you away from everything you hoped for and He does it to save your soul for Him. He does it because He knows what's best for His people and He loves us. You know, we don't know what's best. We think we do. We carve out a path for our lives. We say, this will be great. God looks at it and says, you might think it's great, but it's going to destroy you. And so He smashes that plan to pieces and puts us on another road. But we grumble because we forget where our plans were taking us. God knows. And we forget what we once were. I mean, how else could these people in numbers complain about missing the garlic and the onions and the spices of Egypt? Cucumbers and melons and fish and meat. They forgot that they were slaves. They had forgotten the sting of the whip and the demand of the labor. They looked back on bondage and cruel oppression and they looked back with longing. Sometimes we forget that the wages of sin is death. And sometimes we live as though we think God didn't save us from anything when He turned my world upside down. We forget the sting of living in sin. How often do you look back maybe at your past life and think, wasn't so bad. I'd have been better off now if things hadn't changed. That's not true. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. And as soon as you begin to think that way, You've forgotten the oppression of the evil one. But we do. We forget. We forget that we were headed to destruction. We forget that we were the children of wrath, the sons of disobedience, slaves of sin, following our father, the devil. And when we forget those things, we begin to ignore or even worse, despise what God is doing. In verses 4 and 6, both places, the people grumble about the provision of the Lord. They say, all we have is this manna. And they're so distraught over it, verse 10 tells us they break down in tears. They're literally weeping and wailing. God has set them free from Pharaoh. He's given them the bread of heaven. And they are so ungrateful for what He has done, they cry and they whimper and they sulk. I mean, if that's not forgetting what God has done, I don't know what is. He's taking them to the promised land. He's leading them by a, a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by the day. He's protecting them from their enemies. He's providing for their every need. He keeps their soles of their sandals from wearing out. He's worked miracles for them over and over again. And this is how they respond. But you know what? It's not even half as bad as when we grumble today. It's one thing for God to provide bread from heaven and to part a sea for His people to pass through. It's something else for God to give His only begotten Son and crush Him. And He isn't leading us to war in a promised land, but eternal life inheriting the earth. And so how ungrateful are grumbling when we've been promised so much and given Someone's so great. I mean, imagine you're on a cruise that's run into trouble and the boat's sinking about, I don't know, 24 miles off of shore. In the chaos of the evacuation, your son takes charge of a lifeboat. He gets as many people on board as he safely can and then rows them to the safety of the shore. And when he gets there, he collapses dead from exhaustion. Now, what would you think of the passengers of that lifeboat if, if you were able to go and speak to them and the only thing that they could do was complain that their trip was ruined. Not going to get to enjoy the, the luxurious food that was in the, in, the, in the galley. I was really looking forward to what they were serving Tuesday night. Never going to sleep in my comfortable cabin again. I paid a lot of money for that. What would you do if that's all they could talk about? You would be outraged. And you would be totally justified and right to do so. And if you weren't angry about it, something would be wrong with you. Well, Christian, 
when you complain and grumble. And listen, this is not praying for God to deliver or for help or for relief. This is not asking how long, O Lord, help me to endure. This is anger and irritation at the life God has given you and laid out for you. When you grumble and complain, you are doing exactly that. Despising the will of God and the life of His Son and the reward of His inheritance. You forget the price that was paid for you and the place, the glorious place He is taking you. And so Christian, don't, don't grumble and don't complain and don't be angry about your life. Don't forget where you were. Don't forget that you were once a slave on the broad road headed for destruction and now you've been set free for the narrow road that leads to life. Don't forget those things because forgetting them, it robs you of joy. It robs you of, of the resources to, to live a joyful life and it opens the door to discontent and complaint. That's what forgetfulness does. But it's not only forgetfulness that makes us grumble. Faithlessness can do the same. And that's the second thing that leads the people to complain. They had no faith, no trust in God. They don't believe that He is good or trustworthy or wise. And they show it by their words and actions. You see this a little bit in Numbers 11, but you see it even more clearly in chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, verses 1-4. through 4. Then... All the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They didn't think that God was good. Now that much is obvious. They entirely rejected God's plan for them. And instead they said, this would have been better if we had just died in Egypt. Whatever God's plan is, I would rather die than have to endure it. Whatever the promised land looks like, it can't be any better than dying out here. That's what they said. I mean, listen, God's people know and have always known for thousands of years, God's people have, that following the Lord is hard. It requires death to self. It, it puts you at animosity with the world. It puts you at war with your own flesh and, and it calls you to live in a way the world rejects and the devil hates and your own flesh fights against. It's not going to be easy. But just because it isn't easy and causes you distress, that does not mean that God and His plan are not good. Here, He is leading His people to a land where He will watch over them and make them prosperous. He will help them. He's told them He will give them victory in the battle. And they respond with total faithlessness and complaint that slanders the character of God. They simply refuse to believe that God is good. That's a constant source of grumbling for believers today. We struggle to believe, Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Or that His Word is good when He said in Jeremiah, I will never stop doing good to them. You know, I remember in Bible college, uh, I spoke with a sophomore who had lived a bit of a wild life before coming to Christ, and, and she was telling me the story, and in our conversation, the end of it, she said something that bothered me, and I know she was half-joking when she said it, but we got to the end of the conversation, and she said this, and so I think God is punishing me by sending me to Bible college and putting me into ministry. Well, the reason it bothered me, and, and so I clarified, I said, you think that this isn't the way that God directed your life? This is all just punishment? And she said, yes. Well, it bothered me because it portrayed God as petty and vindictive and unwise. Because written under her statement was, I sinned, and so God is ruining my life. The past was sinful, and now God is just 
in making me pay forever. That's how she thought about God's direction. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because even when we sin, God does not stop doing good to His people. Discipline? Yes. Evil? No. And so even if that sin leads to discipline, and even if that sin has consequences, even painful consequences, that doesn't negate the promise that God will always do good to His people. And even that pain has a purpose that you may not understand yet, but one day you will. God is good to you, and you will never need to doubt it or complain about His providence over you. It reminds me of the the song, God Moves in a Mysterious Ways, written by William Cooper. He says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. God is good. And not only is He good, He is trustworthy. You can trust Him. We read, in, we, we read chapter 14 of Numbers, but do you know what happened in chapter 13? The spies came back to give their report of the land where God was bringing them. And it's a good land. That they are in unanimous agreement, the land is very good. And God's going to give it to us. But the people who live in that land are strong and powerful. They're giants. They've got chariots of iron. Gigantic fortresses. That's their report. And so Israel has, has a choice now. Are they going to believe God and trust Him who says, one of you will put to flight a hundred? God is going to do what He said He would do and drive the Canaanites out and give them this land despite the overwhelming odds? Or are they going to treat God as though He were a liar or a weakling and refuse to believe His promise to drive out the nations? Well, we see what they chose. They saw the challenge and they broke. Have you ever done the same thing? Sin in your life that tempts you like a thorn and you can't get rid of it. Or a disease that that won't go away. Or or a situation God has put you in. And instead of believing that God is doing good through it and trusting He can deliver you out of it or even that He can turn it into something good or something joyful, you get angry at Him. Why did you do this, God? Why did you give me this spouse? Why this child? Why this disease? Why did you take me away from this? Or why did you put me here? And you grumble and complain as if God wasn't trustworthy. You see, what should happen in those moments, those apparently hopeless moments, is they ought to drive us to prayer and greater courage in the Word of the Lord. Not drive us to trust Him less, but to trust Him more. When the Israelites saw the giants, Caleb and Joshua had the right attitude. Yes, they are more powerful than us. But they are not more powerful than God who has promised to deliver them into our hands. Because of their trust in the Lord, the great challenge ahead of them did not bring them to dismay or to grumble or to irritation or complaint. The great challenge ahead of them drove them to the Lord. And so when these come into your life, you go to the Lord, not with complaint, but with an earnest prayer that He will work through this trial, either by delivering you from it or giving you the grace to endure it. He has promised both and you can trust Him without complaint. He will see His every word through all the way to completion. Along those same lines, the people forgot that God knows best. God had placed a authority over them, though far from perfect, a godly authority in Moses. God raised up Moses, chose Moses to lead them, and set His Spirit upon Moses and placed Moses over them. God knew best. And yet, when Moses did not give the people what they thought He should, they decided Moses has led us astray. 
How did they react? They wanted to kill him. Verse 10 said, we're going to stone him and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb. We're going to murder them and pick somebody else who will give us what we want. We'll choose a leader who will take us back to Egypt. You ever complain about godly authorities? Or, Or we'll be specific. Do you blame other people for your circumstances that you don't like? Now, if it just wasn't for so-and-so, God sees that not as rejecting and blaming that authority or that person, but as rejecting and blaming Him. And yes, this does extend to some degree to governments. I mean, just consider King David before he was king and was running from Saul, who was an evil, immoral man who, who consulted fortune tellers and sorcerers, and God Himself promised He would dispose of him. David doesn't complain about Saul. You know, he'll tell him, Saul, what you're doing is evil. He'll assure Saul, I pose no threat. But he doesn't grumble and complain. He doesn't dare raise his hand against Saul for fear of offending the God who anointed him. And so don't, don't blame others or complain about them, whether it's the government or the co-workers or, or whatever. Call evil, evil. But grumbling does no good. God is at work. And He knows what's best. He knows what is good from the eternal perspective. Especially when we don't. And we don't. We don't know the future. That's why we are poor at laying out plans and why our plans don't turn out the way we want. We don't know the beginning from the end, but He does. God is sovereign over all of these things and nothing comes to pass apart from Him. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. And you can trust that whatever happens, anything, relationship, uprooting, new job, no job, change in circumstances, all of it ultimately is from Him. And He is good and trustworthy and wise. And all you need to do is trust and obey. Trust what He is doing so that you don't complain But don't just sit around, open up the book, find out what He wants you to do, and busy yourself with what He has called you to. Trust and obey. That still leaves a question. And the question is, why does God react so severely when His people grumble? I mean, tens of thousands died. Isn't that a bit much? Why is God so offended by the people's complaint? Well, here's the reason. When we complain, we betray that we think we are wiser, better, and kinder than God. We are discontent, which is why in Colossians it compares covetousness or discontentment with idolatry. Because when we complain and grumble and get irritated about God and about our circumstances that He's put us in, we are calling God's wisdom into question and lifting our judgment up. And do you know what's happening in those moments? We want to become like Him. Which is why complaining is a sin of extreme arrogance and pride. I mean, what could be more arrogant than to say, I know better than God? And yet that's what our complaining and grumbling is. It says, if our roles were reversed, I would show myself to be more compassionate I would be more compassionate to myself than God has been. I know where I need to be, and it's not where God has me. I would not order my life like this. I would not do things this way. I know what's best. It's no wonder God responds so relentlessly to this sin. It it isn't just a little grumbling. It's a sin birthed in the mouth of the devil himself, calling men and women to usurp the very throne and sovereignty of God. Which is why he responds the way he does when he answers the Israelites' final complaint in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 6. Numbers 21, 4 and 6. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Same complaint. 
There's no food here. There's no water. And we hate this worthless manna. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. God isn't just punishing them with poison serpents here. He is showing them what they are and who they are following. I don't doubt for a single moment that when poisonous snakes began to pour into the camp, biting and spreading their lethal venom, these people understood what was happening. They knew. They realized that their own complaining and grumbling, that was the true venom that was killing the people, the venom of vipers on their lips. But more than that, how could they not have remembered the garden and the fall and the serpent hissing to Eve, you will be like God. That's exactly what they were doing by their grumbling. We know better than Him. We would make better gods than He. Our plans, superior. And so if you think you're pl- complaining irritability at your life, all of it's no big deal, it is a big deal in God's eyes. It is an attempt to dethrone Him. In fact, it may be the very reason you're in the situation that you are complaining about and finding no relief is because of your complaining and grumbling. And until you repent of that grumbling and yield to the wisdom of the Lord over your life, God will not make things better, but worse. And God sends serpents against you to bring you to repentance and to bring you down from approaching His throne in rebellion. And look, I, I know this is the kind of thing that the world laughs at, right? Seriously, you're concerned about complaining? And everything going on in the world, all of the evil, and you're worried about this? There are schools of thought that say people should complain. They have a right to complain. One of the problems in the world is people don't complain loudly or forcefully enough. And you hear that kind of language. Well, what do you expect from a world that belongs to the evil one? Of course, they would make nothing of this sin. They don't care about God. They don't care that He is offended. They don't care that He's honored. They don't care if He's dethroned. They want Him dethroned. It doesn't matter at all. And so it's no wonder people think usurping the throne of God by complaint is no big deal. But we ought to know better. We ought to know better than to arrogantly speak against what God is doing in our lives and not fall for the deception of the evil one that would tempt us to act and speak and live as though we could have a better plan. James says this in in James 4. You who say you will go to such and such a city and, and turn a prophet, you boast. And all such boasting is evil. Rather, you should say, if the Lord wills. Our lives are yielded to the Lord. And I believe it's at this point in Israel's history they finally understood what their complaining meant. It meant they wanted a God they could control. They wanted to be the Master. And they were taking the side of the devil against God. And when they realized that, something changed. And we know something changed because they did something here that they had never in the ten other times they complained in Exodus and Numbers had done. Verses 7, starting in verse 7 of chapter 21. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Before they cried out here, We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. They confess their sin. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, <coughs> Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. They repented. And it is the most complete repentance in the book of Numbers because this specific event does mark a turning point. Because from here until the book of Judges, that's a, oh, an entire generation, they never complain again. In the book of uh, when the armies of Gilead ambushed them, 
They crush them in the strength of the Lord. They take vengeance on the Midianites and defeat them entirely. Balaam blesses them and cannot curse them. Even in the, in the story of them going after the women and the gods of the Moabites, it's the zeal of the high priest of the, 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 the upcoming generation about to go into the land, his zeal that put an end to the plague. And it's the chiefs of the people, the elders who are held responsible. There's a change here. When they face the River Jordan, its banks are bursting because of the time of year. They are faithful and unafraid. When the spies are sent to spy out the land again, sent by Joshua, and they come back with their report, this time the people are ready to go. When they face the walls of Jericho, they are obedient to every word of the Lord. And when the enemy armies come against them, no matter how many or how greatly they're outnumbered, they stand, not on their own strength, but they face their foes standing on the promises of God, and so they face them boldly no matter the odds. That's the opposite of complaining, isn't it? The opposite of complaint is faithfulness to the Word of God and humility that trusts Him. How easy would it have been for the people to see the walls of Jericho and say, I guess it's over. Trusting in what they could do and not the arm of the Lord. Boldness and courage in trying circumstances comes from trusting in the Lord more than what you can see, more than what you can perceive, more than the power your hands have to do. We trust in Him. There's another reason why this time is different. This judgment has a cure. Moses cried out in times past, and the plague stopped, the fire stopped, the sickness stopped. Here, there is a cure. Moses is told to cast a bronze serpent, and whoever looks at it when it's lifted up, they would be healed. They would live. They would be saved from the poison, from their devilish rebellion. And they were. And herein is the answer for the discontent, complaining soul. It is humility that is manifested by repentance and faith. And so if I've been describing you this morning, you're a constant complainer, a perpetual grumbler. It's always, why me, God? Why me? Why this? Why are you doing that? Why won't you do this? And you're irritated at what God has done in your life. If that's you this morning, you're not content, you're miserable, you can be set free from that. But it's going to take a lot of humility to go to God knowing that you've sinned, knowing that you've grieved Him or offended His authority, and humbly submit yourself to Him and to His ways and His direction for your life, even if it means all of your plans go to pieces and are carried away by the wind. Then and only then can you be content in Christ. He who saves his life will lose it. But he who loses his life, my sake, Jesus says, will find it. We think contentment is found in getting what we want and having things our way. That is not true. That's the world. A true contentment that cannot be shaken or taken away, is found only when we lay everything down for Jesus and joyfully receive from His hand whatever He gives. True contentment comes from trusting wholeheartedly in the One who does no wrong, cannot lie, is perfectly trustworthy, and always does His people good. True contentment that frees you from grumbling and complaining is only found in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That passage we just read, the bronze serpent, did you know that it's the setting for the probably the best known verse in all of the Bible? John 3.16. If John 3.16 is the gem, then the story of the bronze serpent is the setting that holds it. John 14 and 15. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so the answer for the constant grumbler, look to Christ. First, for forgiveness, for refusing to trust Him. Second, to be cured from the plague of death that is upon you because of that sin. And third, look in faith to the cross of Christ for rest and satisfaction. He died for the complainer to forgive them so that they could be content in Him. If your sin is taken away in Christ, if you have been reconciled to God, you have nothing to complain about in this life. Everything that comes, whatever it may be, is small in comparison. And it is working for your good. It is easy to complain. It comes so naturally to us. Train yourself, memorize, pray about, trust in the promises of God, in His goodness, in His faithfulness, and do not forget what He has done so that you will not only be able to be content and not grumble. I mean, imagine if everything you complained about today was turned into joy. That is yours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, the blessings of Your cross are without number. As Ephesians tells us, they are immeasurable. And in all of eternity, we will not come to the end of them. Who but You, Lord, could take our worst days, our most awful trials, and work them into something good? Oh Lord, You are wise enough to do that. You promised to do that, and You do it in every situation. And I pray, Lord, that You would set free Your people today from grumbling. That You would set them free from discontentment and being irritated at their circumstances, whether it's the job that they're in, whether it's the role of a husband or a mother or a father or a wife that You've placed them in whether they feel, Lord, like You've taken them and crumpled them up and thrown them into a far land, like my friend at Bible college. I pray, Lord, that You would help them to go to You in repentance. Lord, it is the rope that gets them out of the hole. I pray, God, that You would give them contentment and joy like You gave to Paul, who found the secret to being content in all circumstances, Lord, it's not a secret anymore. You've made it plain to us today. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. I pray that wouldn't just be a slogan, Lord, but a reality in all of our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. And we look to for help in times of trouble so that we would be able to trust, Lord, increase our faith that we may rejoice in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.